Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Stiley, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, November 7th, 2021. We are on the other side of the elections that took place on Tuesday, on the other side of Infrastructure Week. Although I just, I just, I can't believe that it's truly over. Emotionally, mentally, it's all the same thing. So Naomi, what shows did you cover today? I looked at Fox News Sunday, I looked, which was actually hosted by Bill Hemmer. Fox News Sunday was not Chris Wallace because he was in California getting some award with Liz Cheney and James Clyburn at the Panetta Institute. Oh, So he had a nice little, you know, weekend in the Bay Area. That sounds like an interesting comedy special where the three of them. Well, go they off had a new a... segment. I mean, there was like a taped interview with Cheney and Clyburn and whatever. It was fine. Um, but well, he to... asked them, why do you think I deserve this award? <laughs> why am I here? <laughs> so I looked, yeah. So Fox News Sunday, the, you know, live interviews were done by Bill Hemmer. And I looked at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan. And this week was hosted by co-anchor Martha Raddatz. I looked at Meet the Press, hosted by Chuck Todd. And I looked at State of the Union, hosted by Dana Bash. So, Naomi, let's get into our quality... Wait, just for a second. That means there were three lady hosts out of the five. Yes. I don't know if we've... Yes, I've that's... Ob- oh, I know that's That probably happened. happened, but I don't think I've, like, actively observed it, the, like, the day it happened, which is just nice. It is very nice. Yeah. But <laughs> it's probably going to be, like, the extent of the nice things I have to say today. <laughs> Brendan, what are you talking about today? So I have a quality set of questions that Chuck Todd asked Ron Klain, chief of staff to President Biden. I felt like they were the types of questions that dug a little bit deeper than the surface level. Here is the first one. It's related to the Build Back Better agenda that the House is working to get passed following the CBO scoring on November 15th. It's the, the question I think a lot of people have this morning, at least I follow this Build Back Better part of negotiations very closely, is it does seem that the things that were added to the House version, paid family leave, which a week ago the president said was out, is back in. Medicare negotiating prescription drug pricing. When last week the president said it was out, the House put it back in. The modifications to state and local taxes, it was out. Now it's back in. Immigration, that's something for the parliamentarian, but it was out. Now it's back in. All of those things were out because it didn't seem to have Senate support. And there's no indication that Senators Manchin or Cinema are all on board everything like this. Are House progressives prepared for this to get scaled right back again? Well, Chuck, I disagree with some of that. I mean, immigration was in the framework the president put out uh, before he left for Europe. 
Uh, and the a Medicare prescription drug provision, something we just needed to work the final details out. Senator Sinem has been a real leader in trying to get us to the finish line with that, along with Senator Globachar, Senator Schumer, uh, others on all sides of our party. Uh, and so, you know, it took a little longer to get that across the finish line. I think this bill will pass the House when the House comes back. I'm sure the Senate will make changes. That's the way the legislative process works. But we are going to get a very strong version of this bill through the House, through the Senate, to the president's desk and into law. And, and, and again, it's because the American people need some help with their basic expenses. One thing this bill does is it cuts the cost of child care in half in half mm-hmm. for middle-class families. That's one of the main pain points in their budget. So I think this bill is gaining momentum. We're going to get it passed. We're going to get it signed. And most importantly, we're going to get to work for the American people. So that was an important question. And Chuck Todd asked it actually in a pretty eloquent way. This was in, this was out, now it's back in. This was out, now it's back in. It was, you know, lots of great repetition. Well said, well spoken. At least in this clip that you're sharing, Klein didn't put a big book He didn't place a lot of pressure, I feel like, on the Senate or some urgency, which I think is deserved at this point. You know, there's been so much talk about the sausage making. Nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to hear it. Let's just get something done. Well, like, put some fire into the Senate ass to actually move this forward as quickly as possible. He's like, they're going to do it and we're going to see and hopefully something passes. Like, really? This is. Yeah, that's an important point. Here, this, is, this is like continues on with like the zero blowback on mansion and cinema. But anyway, <laughs> here is the second question I wanted to highlight. I want to ask about one thing that came up in the climate summit that may have an impact on Build Back Better. The United States was notably absent from signing on to a pledge to phase out coal. We joined India and China among countries that did not sign that pledge. There's been some reporting And it's one of those sources, so it's not on the record sources that indicated Senator Manchin was certainly uh, in in the heads of U.S. negotiators when that decision not to sign on uh, on eliminating coal was made. Is that the case? Is Joe Manchin's uh, vote for Build Back Better a part of the decision in not signing on to coal, getting rid of coal? No, look, no, look, we're in a. A transition here to get us to a clean energy future. What is in our minds is the fact that that Build Back Better plan that we've been talking about has the largest investment in American history to get us to a clean energy economy, to create millions of jobs in this country uh, moving forward uh, to, to uh, sustainable, renewable energy, uh, not just creating jobs here, deploying those energies here, but building the technology uh, to ship around the world. So uh, we're making progress that the president had a great uh, uh, time, a great uh, effective time in Glasgow, mm-hmm. meeting with world leaders, uh, making sure that they know the U.S. is back. <laughs> Look, the, the President Biden was in Glasgow. Uh, the presidents of Russia and China were not. We are going to lead the world okay. in tackling climate change. We're going to pass this bill and have the tools to do it. So a very direct question from Chuck Todd there about the coal provisions being affected by Joe Manchin. What's interesting here is that Ron Klain's answer is no, we're committed to a clean energy future. And here are all these examples of that. But at no point does he explain, well, then why did the U.S. not sign on to eliminate coal? Why? What's your answer? You don't have an answer. Yeah, it should be less about the reason and more or or the rumors. Right. The rumors are a distraction. 
why don't you get to the core of actually why the U.S. wouldn't agree to it? Yes. And unfortunately, Chuck Todd doesn't press him on that. Naomi, did you have a quality or a questionable moment? From your tone earlier, it sounds like it is likely to be questionable. Actually, I do have a quality moment. I was... Wow. I was still in my feelings from prepping my agenda. But I do have a quality moment. All right. So if anyone watched Fox News Sunday, you already know what my quality moment is. Well, I didn't. So I don't know. I know. I'm talking about everybody else. So this came up in an interview that Bill Hemmer had with Cedric Richmond. And in it, they're actually talking about this potential payout or the potential settlement that immigrant families, when they were separated from their children, that the Biden administration is considered just offering them a financial settlement. But take a listen to the exchange, the clip that's used from Biden and why you probably think it's a quality moment for me. There's still confusion on another topic as to whether or not the government will make payments to illegals. Here's what the president said on Saturday when asked about it. If, in fact, because of the the outrageous behavior of the last administration, you coming across the border, whether it was legal or illegal, and you lost your child, you lost your child, it's gone. You deserve some kind of compensation, no matter what the circumstance. So again, that was yesterday. On Wednesday, however, he said this to Fox News. Do you think that that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? If you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. So this is a garbage report. Yeah. So within an hour of that comment, the ACLU said, quote, President Biden may not have been fully briefed about the actions of his very own Justice Department and went on from there. Was he in the loop to begin with? The president's in the loop. But the president said at the beginning of his administration on a campaign trail that he would have an independent Department of Justice, that he would not direct the Department of Justice what to do. And if you go back to the question, the question was from a Fox reporter asking about whether compensation for being separated and losing a child would be an incentive to come to America. And what he was saying was that was an absurd question from the beginning. No one's coming somewhere to lose their child, to be separated from their loved one. And and the question is so insensitive, disrespectful, that that's what he was commenting to. And I I would ask the question of you, whether you support that. I mean, at some point, we cannot, with a straight face, say that parents are willing to separate from a child uh, for a dollar amount. That's just not true. And and we should not talk like that. We keep saying we're better than that, but we're not acting like that. So multiple things here are worth noting. One, that President Biden called a bad question (laughs) by a journalist a garbage question. You keep sending that garbage out. I was like, what is he talking about? He's talking about the question. He's talking about the question. Highlight moment. One of my highlight moments of the day. (laughs) Then the journalist uses it to say, is this a garbage report? Like, this is the best. But it goes on beyond that because Cedric Richmond kind of brings it all together and saying, like, actually, what he was commenting on was the question like the premise of the question itself is trash and the idea that you are continuing this line of question 
is assuming you think it's just like a just question, like a worthwhile question of whether or not families are coming here to purposely be separated for some dollar amount. And I think, I mean, it's just like a great immediate response by by President Biden. But this kind of kind of looping it all together by Cedric Richmond, it's calling out like the multiple layers at Fox News for continuing this hollow narrative around this potential settlement that families might be getting. Yeah, it's just crazy on its face. You know, the idea that it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to send our children to be to lose our children. Like, we're going to go as a family with the hopes of being separated and then making money? Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, if, if Fox News wanted to question the dollar amount, which later Bill Hummer does say, like, well, then what amount should it be? Or question whether it's constitutional or whether it would be appealed or whatever. But those would be more reasonable questions in my mind than proclaiming it will incentivize families to come to then be separated. Like it. Yeah, this will be another surge of people because they can just hope that they're going to be separated. And then, you know, a few years later, get compensation by another president. (laughs) What? Yeah. So that was my quality moment. Brendan, I have a lot of things to say about the coverage of the election this week. What are you talking about? Same thing. So we just have a lot to say about election things, which is funny because last week we said we don't want to talk about election things, (laughs) but the election happened and we're noticing a lot of questionable journalism. Well, and just a lot of conversation on it. If we're going to cover the Sunday shows, we got to cover what they cover. And this is what they're covering. That's all they're covering. So my general take on it is it's interesting to look at how the shows have interpreted the election results on Tuesday. So what were those results? The results were a mixed bag, but generally not as good for Democrats as Democrats likely hoped. So... Specifically, Terry McAuliffe lost in Virginia. Yes, a place where Biden won by large, large margins just last year. And the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, squeaked by a re-election win. Democratic governor. Correct. And there was an array of progressive city races that no one is willing to acknowledge. Yes. So there was a lot of talk about what the problem was for Democrats And a lot of it was focused on, it felt like, the idea that Democrats are just too progressive, they're too woke, and these progressives, particularly including the progressives in Washington, have failed to get things done, and Biden, you know, no one elected Biden to be FDR, we heard that quote a million times, and that the Republicans won because they were able, you know, Youngkin in particular, as the Republican who won in Virginia, was able to sideline Trump and manage Trump in the race. And that's the that's the winning ticket for sideline Trump while still successfully courting Trump's base. Right. That's why I say manage. Right. Rather yeah. than, you know, defeat or push right. aside. So that was like the show's narrative, but it doesn't always align with the facts, even the facts that the shows themselves presented. So what I want to do for my segment is I want to talk about a little bit to start with what the data says, which was talked about a little bit on Meet the Press and then some other sources I found. But then I want to get into 
what the narrative is and what they keep pushing at, pushing at, pushing at. Sounds great. Why don't you show us some of the observations you notice on the two shows? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I want to preface all of this conversation with kind of what we said last week, and that is, and it seems like weeks before that, that so much focus on the shows has been around, how do we interpret this? What does this mean for Democrats moving into the midterms? And this is what the shows are talking about. We're going to talk about it. But the reality is we can't predict what's going to happen in the year, in a year, what the country's going to look like in a year. And we should know from the craziness of the pandemic that lots of things can change within a year. So the idea that this election is truly, truly predictive of what's going to happen next year is a huge farce. But anyway, let's get into what this might say about where we are now and what it might mean for Democrats, at least now. On Meet the Press, some of the most interesting comments took place in the panel, at least the comments that felt like they were backed up by the most data instead of just random speculation. And one of the panelists I'd like to play for you is Amna Nawaz. She is a PBS NewsHour chief correspondent. She was talking about some of the issues that drove the voters in Virginia. But in addition to COVID and economy, which were the two biggest issues for Virginia voters, mm. this education issue we keep talking about, which is not really about how kids, how well they read or write or like what they're learning in chemistry. It's about race and racism and history. And that really appealed and turned out a lot of parents in particular in Virginia who've long been frustrated for the last 18 months. You know, so this is an interesting point, right? She's saying it's not about progressiveness necessarily it's about this idea of race and racism critical race theory so notably missing from that clip by nawaz was discussion of covid itself and how that related to the school's conversation in a great piece in reuters by james oliphant an analysis looking into some of the factors that led to youngkin's win the republicans win in the governorship of virginia oliphant wrote quote the republicans seized on tensions between parents and school boards over policies for covid 19 school closures and safety protocols, gender issues, and the teaching of critical race theory, a term misused to describe anti-racism curricula that Youngkin said was evidence that school districts were drifting too far leftward. Oliphant continued, quote, McAuliffe may have made the largest mistake of the campaign when at a debate he said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. The remark soon became a centerpiece of Youngkin attack ads. And the issue as a whole may have resonated with scores of suburban parents frustrated after seeing their children kept at home for more than a full school year during the pandemic. So I thought this point by Oliphant was really important because a lot of the conversation around schools, as Nawaz points out here, that we've seen on the Sunday shows have focused on critical race theory, have focused on issues of progressivism. But really, a lot of the schooling and education issues may have had their roots in COVID-19 school closures, and that that kind of formed a baseline for the Republicans to further make schools an issue because it was already on the minds of so many voters. Frustration over schools was on those minds, and McAuliffe made it worse by getting in there and saying parents need to have or should have less 
power when it comes to schools. Now, McAuliffe walked that back. He said he was taken out of context, blah, 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 blah. But this whole education piece, it's really important to recognize what a role it played in this particular election. So I actually have this in part of my segment, Brendan. So I think we should probably kind of do maybe a potential ping pong back and forth on some of the themes that we found that were similar. But I found this really questionable as well. This came up on Face the Nation when Margaret Brennan was talking to John Dickerson and also Amy Walter of the uh, Cook Political Report. And it's just the questions that she's exploring are bad. <laughs> They're just that Margaret Brennan is Margaret Brennan is asking these two very smart people to explore are just bad. Take a listen and I'll kind of have my rant afterward. But on that point, education is how it's referred to, right? And and that has been an issue Republicans have come back to, just to reopening classrooms. Now it's about what's taught in those classrooms. Jung can really focused in on that. Does critical race theory and everything it's come to symbolize um, become one of those cultural wedge issues? Is it the new defund the police, essentially? They're related. There is nothing more sensitive in American life than race. And no worse place to talk about sensitive issues than in a campaign, (laughs) because it's about attack and fuzzying up issues. If you think of after George Floyd was murdered, America had a conversation and an opening up a perspective about how to deal with race. It was in corporations, it was in politics, it was in religion, and in the schoolroom, there was a feeling that you had to teach that racism didn't just come with a white hood. Enter now the theory of critical race theory, which is a legal fight over here, but it's brought in in the political context to fuzzy everything up. So you have people who both don't like the idea, uh, who are just straight up racist, and those who don't like to be called a racist because they're questioning the idea of defund the police. Condoleezza Rice said, you know, black students should, be in, should not be empowered by making white students feel less empowered. What somebody would respond is, yes, but we can have a conversation about the contemporary ramifications of historical racism. Mm-hmm. We should be able to, but you can't in a political fight. Yeah, nuance is not graded. So that sounds like a measured response by John Dickerson. But the question itself assumes a connection from frustrated, exhausted COVID parents trying to keep their children in schools and trying to keep them learning and thriving and progressing as the same exact parents who are fighting against critical race theory. And that connection itself is completely is nonsense. There might be some overlap, but to assume that all these parents who are struggling with childcare, who are struggling with these mandatory quarantines, who are struggling with maybe delays in their children's education because of this global pandemic and this often rocky back and forth mitigation measures on their children, that is different than the arguments and frustrations with critical race theory and like education's a pretty vast topic like as journalists you should be able to parse the two and say this is the frustration that locals parents have with their education and why they were offended that they couldn't have a role in their schools in their child's education or their child's school and this is the part that's about critical race theory but to then just like loop it all together is so lazy it is so lazy to just have it be one and the same because newsflash critical race theory isn't even taught in virginia right it hasn't been ever right but there are frustrated parents in virginia who did not vote for terry mcauliffe yep 
Yeah, there was actually an excellent piece in the Political Playbook PM, published November 4th, where the journalists were previewing an interview they did with the top campaign advisors for Youngkin, the Republican who won the governorship. And they were asking, you know, for a look at what they were thinking about, right, as they were running the campaign. And their point, the Republican strategist working for Youngkin, was that they were actually afraid of the Democrats hitting them on the issue of education, hitting them on painting Republicans as being bad on education, saying they're going to fire teachers and cut pay, and that they thought McAuliffe was going to say, look, I was governor before, I have a record on teachers, and they basically said, McAuliffe should have hit us first and disqualified us on this issue. But instead, McAuliffe was talking about Trump and abortion and climate change and other issues. And so the conclusion that the Politico Playbook team made was that Youngkin's advisors were preparing to lean into a Democratic issue since January, and their big fear was that Democrats would retain their traditional advantage on that issue, and number two, that the race was about education, as many gubernatorial races often are, not critical race theory, which was only important to a small subset of voters. And yet the conversation continues endlessly. And yeah, I I don't make this argument to say that like Terry McAuliffe ran a flawless campaign. Clearly he did not. And, you know, I have more to say around his actual like field game. But the conversation among journalists and pundits is so, is so lazy. Like Margaret Brennan literally goes from reopening classrooms, what's taught in classrooms to defund the police. No, I'm sorry. Reopening classrooms, what's taught in classrooms, i.e. critical race theory, to defund the police. Like, it's all like a straight line for her. Yeah, which they're so different. They're so different. And to like, to generalize people in that way that like, if you care about this, then you care about that. And then you care about this. And if you don't care about this, then you don't care about that. And you don't care about this. Like... That's not how people are. That's not what communities are. That's not how people vote. So why are you like framing the conversation that way? I like I just like do they have any black people on their staff at CBS? Like I genuinely do not understand this lazy these lazy lazy connections to let some white lady go on camera and and connect it in this way. Genuinely. So let's take a look at one of those, another question that is kind of leaning into this idea that the reason McAuliffe lost was that he was too liberal, that the Democrats are too liberal. This is a question Chuck Todd had for Ron Klain, Biden's chief of staff. I want to ask you about another exit poll result that we saw in Virginia. It was about voters' perceptions of the two parties. And more more people, 51%, thought the Democratic Party was too liberal than who thought the Republican Party was too conservative at 46 percent. Do you fear that there is a perception problem about the Democratic Party among independent voters and and perhaps right of center voters that the party looks like it's too progressive? I, I don't think so, Chuck. Look, I think part of that reflects who turned out in Virginia Tuesday night. That is its own uh, problem and issue. But I also do want to push back a little bit. Look, we lost on Tuesday in Virginia. It was painful. Terry McAuliffe's an old friend of mine. Uh, I'm so sad to see him lose, lose the Virginia legislature. But it's also worth noting on Tuesday night, 
we did get Governor Murphy, who is on next, reelected in New Jersey. The first Democrat in 44 years to get reelected in New Jersey. We held on to the mayorship in New York. Eric Adams, a great new leader for our party. We lost the mayorship in New York uh, in 2009, the last time we had a new Democratic president. We had a lot of great, exciting Democrats elected around the country. So there are a few weird things about this question. On the face of it, it seems reasonable. But then when you dig a little deeper, you're like, huh, there's a lot of weird things about this question. First of all, the numbers aren't that convincing, right? 51% of the people thought the Democratic Party was too liberal. 46% thought the Republican Party was too conservative. There's not a ton of difference there, 46 versus 51. Number two, the as Ron Klain points out, this is the people who voted that night. So they're not necessarily all voters. They're just the people who showed up in these and took these exit polls. And number three is Chuck Todd's question. What, what kind of question is that? His real question was, do you fear there's a perception problem about the De- Democratic Party among independent voters and perhaps right of center voters that the party looks like it's too progressive? Well, of course, independent voters and right of center voters aren't going to like progressives because that's not them if they like them they would be them right like it it doesn't make any sense if you ask a progressive if they'd prefer more of the moderates to instead be progressive they'd say of course and if you ask moderates or right of center people whether they they thought that progressive people should be less progressive they'd say of course like there's nothing groundbreaking about this question in any way it's just obvious on the face of it so I just don't understand what the point of this is beyond pushing this narrative that somehow slightly more of the people who showed up to vote in Virginia in this single election thought that Democrats were a little more left than Republicans were right. Yeah, and it just seems like, gee, I don't know, there's data you could look at this point to be able to explore that a little bit more fully or see how it matches up with the exit polls or like i don't know it reminds me of like some eighth grade essay where someone's making some giant claims and they're like you know three paragraphs of evidence is actually like fluff and nothing but then they're like (laughs) but then you know they have like this strong conclusion it's like but this is this is based on nothing it's so negligible (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's very it's it's very weird. And we're supposed to be like astounded, curious. Like, am I supposed to care with this level of like these tiny margins that right. might lead? Tiny you know, margins among the people who happened to show up, which we know there was less turnout among Democrats. I think it was something like, I think I saw the number here. It's like 56% that McAuliffe only like got 56% of the vote that Biden did. So that's a lot less, right? <laughs> when we're talking about turnout. Well, and just kind of thinking of like where, what is your analysis based in? It kind of drove me crazy because on this week, Martha Raddatz spent time kind of driving, or I don't know if she was driving, traveling across the South, (laughs) talking to voters. It was like in North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, you know, kind of what their impressions are, what they were expecting from a Biden administration or blah, 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 blah. And, And what that might mean for the midterms. Oh my gosh. Right. But if you think about it, ABC News owns 538 now, right? Like, if you wanted to do some, like, deeper 
much faster analysis of, you know, who the voters were, what, you know, what the turnout was in certain areas. You could do that with the 538 team. But Nate Silver did something on the GOP potential 2024 candidates. Again? Yeah. What the hell? They are obsessed with this. He just did that. He just talked about Trump in the primary like last week. No, this one was about like Chris Christie and Nikki oh Haley. Oh my God. Like there's literally like fresh data that we haven't had like meaningful analysis on. Like why not do that? But whatever. They didn't want to use Nate Silver that way. Okay. Good, good, good use of your acquisition. But but what does he think about the election in <sighs> in 2057? <laughs> huh? What are you going to do then? But what drove me crazy is that then they talk about the analysis that they're providing like it's deep and meaningful, but we're actually not given anything. Take a listen to this first clip with Sarah. She's an ABC News contributor. And, and Sarah, I was struck, like if you drove through Northern Virginia before election day, where you never saw a, a Trump sign in 2020, there were Yunkin signs everywhere. So this was different. Campaign operatives hate the yard sign uh, <laughs> polling, but you know, the last couple it of elections, it's actually been fairly uh, accurate. Uh, 2016, people kept talking about the yard signs. Um, <clears throat> look. I think that you can over and under read what happened in Virginia. First, uh, you take Virginia by itself and dive into the difference between Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin. I think you can miss then what happened in Minneapolis, Buffalo, New Jersey. New Jersey saw a bigger swing from 2020 than Virginia saw. Uh, so you need to find something that was similar in all of those places. Okay, so looking at only Northern Virginia to analyze the full state of Virginia. Oh my God. Is. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> the DC news media ecosystem trying to do state news. Yeah. Fairfax County, Arlington County, even what, Loudoun County does not reflect the full state. <laughs> like, no. if that's what you're looking at, like, you're already missing the boat. So, good job framing it within that, even if it was supposed to be like just a throwaway line. But that drove me crazy. But I thought, okay, maybe we're going to hear some comparison about New Jersey and Virginia. Like, it seems like Sarah is saying that this is something worth evaluating, that this is like something, you know, to find some theme. How does she continue? At the same time, Terry McAuliffe didn't just run against Donald Trump. That was his first message. But in every ad that I saw, his second one was abortion. And I think the other thing that we've seen is even in the wake of Texas, abortion is no longer a motivating factor on the left. And I don't think it's much of a motivating factor on the right compared to what it was 15 years ago. Terry McAuliffe, in a lot of ways, was running a 1996 to 2004 race in 2021. Um, and I think Democrats who look too much at the education issue are missing what parents were actually saying. Schools in Fairfax County, the largest place of voters in Virginia, were closed for the 2020-2021 school year. Incredibly frustrated. How many bullet points is she trying to get into one sentence? I know. I mean, Sarah Isger is kind of like a Republican pundit, so I'm, I'm not terribly surprised. But it's hard to even follow what she's yeah, saying. Yeah, like, if there's a theme with between Virginia and New Jersey, explore it or say something, literally anything about Minneapolis and Buffalo other than the name of those cities. What was interesting about them? Like there's no larger theme. And then when they try to kind of dive into one state, the state of Virginia, they're not even doing it in a real way and just kind of 
like again looping in these like disconnected topics and it's just it's just so frustrating like if you want to make this an argument against terry mcauliffe's you know media campaigns then like make it about that like it seems like he didn't have a very strong again field game and ad campaign like okay do it about that but then like looping them all together you're actually not saying anything and right well she basically said let's not just look at mcauliffe because there's a bigger story here across all these places but now let's look at mcauliffe and his media campaign (laughs) right what so i have a little bit of an answer to you for that like what connected all these campaigns And it was in my research on what actually happened in Virginia. And it was covered in an article by Zach Bouchamp in Vox, where he talks about the thermostatic explanation, which sounds really fancy. But basically, it's just this idea coined by political scientist Chris Willazen in 1995, that basically American politics is like somebody adjusting the thermostat in their house. And that, oh, it's too hot, so they make it really cold. And they're like, oh, no, it's too cold, and they make it really hot. And that this is what the American people do. And if you look, when a Democrat's in power, Republicans gain seats. When Republicans in power, Democrats gain seats. And there's just this swinging back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's amazing it took until 1995 for people to realize that. But indeed, that is when the term was coined. And Beauchamp writes... Quote, negative media coverage of the Afghanistan withdrawal, Democratic infighting surrounding Biden's economic agenda and the pandemic's persistence all seem to have taken a serious toll on the public's perception of the Biden administration. Virginia Democrats would have already faced an uphill battle with a Democrat in the White House. That the Democratic president is now especially unpopular explains a lot about the November 2nd results. How the, Then he goes on. How those results are interpreted and which narratives take hold matter because they shape the way the parties respond. Quote, perhaps more important is how other officials elected and not in Virginia, in Washington and elsewhere, understand it and alter their actions. That's a quote he has from Georgetown's Matt Glassman, which is interesting, right? This thermostatic explanation. And the point that Glassman makes is you and I, Naomi, can argue over what truly caused this win, but the conversation on the Sunday shows and the conversation that people are having about it, even if they're wrong, might change and shape the choices that other political actors make. So speaking of one of the narratives around why Terry McAuliffe lost. One of them is this idea of, as we mentioned, the Democrats being too progressive, not just progressive in terms of policy, but progressive in terms of the words used, wokeness, et cetera, et cetera. But by this measure, you would truly expect that Terry McAuliffe was an extremely progressive candidate, right? Because they're trying to say he lost because progressives are not popular but he himself was not a progressive that's the weird thing right right how can you say that he lost because democrats are too progressive but he wasn't a progressive democrat and he lost so how is that the conclusion i don't get it but anyway people are making that conclusion and they're trying to push that narrative endlessly and but what i by by people i mean the journalists on these shows here's dana bash speaking with another very not progressive from Virginia, Senator Mark Warner. 
improve. I, I want you to listen to what Democratic strategist James Carville had to say about what he thinks went wrong for Democrats. What went wrong is just stupid wokeness. I mean, just defund the police, lunacy, just take Abraham Lincoln's name off of schools. I mean, that people see that. And it, 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 it's, it's just really a, have a suppressive effect all across the country. The Democrats, some of these people need to go to a woke detox center or something. <laughs> Are Democrats too woke, Senator? Listen, I don't support defund the police. Matter of fact, I think you've saw Democrats all around who were successful. The new mayor of New York, who you're going to have on, has talked about investing additionally in our police forces. Are there ways that we need to make that policing more community-based? Absolutely. Um, the, the, the notion of what happened in Virginia, where the, you know, there is not a school in Virginia that teaches critical race theory, uh, but the governor-elect, Governor Yunkin, um, stirred up the cultural pot that, there. I that's hope true. he governs in Can a So I have a clip also using this clip from James Carville. Mm -hmm. It was one of the favorite clips this week in the Sunday shows. Yeah. In this clip, you'll hear Margaret Brennan talking to Cedric Richmond, an advisor to the Biden administration. Democratic strategist James Carville pointed this week to the loss of suburban voters uh, in a state like Virginia, and he said, what went wrong is the stupid wokeness. He argued Democrats are are being defined by the progressives. You're not defining your own message, particularly when it comes to issues like the economy. Aren't Republicans using that to their advantage? Well, the Republicans will use anything to their advantage, whether it's true or not. Uh, They're the party of misinformation. Uh, We see it with vaccines. We see it with everything. And what they've been able to do is weaponize things and uh, define it in their own way. The president has been very clear that his budget included 300 million more dollars for community policing because we know that every community wants to be safe while he's talked about making sure that we have significant police reform. And so we're not defined by uh, all of those things out there. But I think that the real issue is not exactly what James is saying, I think it's the fact that the Republicans will weaponize anything, fact or fiction. Like my immediate reaction to white journalists using the term wokeness or criticizing things being too woke is they don't actually want to talk about sensitive issues that certain people, certain voters, certain communities are really passionate on. They don't want to actually understand the nuance of defund the police or police reform. They don't really want to talk about LGBT issues or immigration in a meaningful, like, what are you criticizing? Like, what are the policy proposals that you think represents being too woke? Because the thing is, is every single one of these people have some different understanding. So if you're using some blanket term that everyone has a different definition for, no one is talking about the same thing. But you let people like James Carville right. define this vague-ass term. As if it's a brilliant insight by James Carville. As which, it's defined in any way. Right. And which James Carville is not being honest about what Democrats are saying. As... Warner, who is not a progressive, who no one would define as like a far left person, even Warner says, look, Democrats don't say that they want to defund the police. None of the people who are trying to get elected said that. And yet 
you're going to elevate you, Margaret Brennan, you, Dana Bash, are going to elevate James Carville, who is saying things that are factually not true about other Democrats because you you just like this narrative because it's, ooh, he's being critical and he's a Democrat being critical of Democrats. So, ooh, that's a catchy phrase. Let's ask everyone about it. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just kind of still stuck on, like, there's a responsibility of journalists of using definitive terms and language and to be aware of what language they are using that is, to be frank, it's like just straight up propaganda. And to say that, like, you know, a prominent, you know, Democratic strategist said this, so please respond. Like, they're negating and not acknowledging their own role in continuing the, con- like, the misconception right. that this term wokeness is a valid criticism that is the thing that like i can't get over it's like james carville sells crazy shit all the time like all the time i why there needs to be like an interesting clip of like how people are responding to what james carville said like we've been doing that for literally 30 years okay as journalists like what are you trying to claim here by using the term wokeness like is it like it, it it just really kind of drives me crazy because you know like right now in in because of the virginia election it's a euphemism for talking about race in classrooms right mm-hmm. a few months ago it was about gender pronouns a few months ago you know it's, it's sometimes about like gender expression or sometimes it's about the environment and like or, or renaming military bases that were named after Confederates. Correct. And and in all these times, they're saying, like, you know, are Democrats this woke? It's like, what are you criticizing? Like, you are saying nothing, so stop taking space in my brain. I don't think there's, like, ill intent by journalists by using the term, but that laziness has... There, there are consequences to it. And they're endorsing the laziness. Exactly. They're participating in it. Right, it's not that's just, the word. It's not just endorsing it. Yeah. They are participating in it mm-hmm. and continuing it mm-hmm. and giving everyone a pass to be lazy about it too. Like, how are people supposed to have this conversation with a coworker when, like, journalists who are trained in dialogue and questions can't even do it? You can't. There's no example on television right now, or at least on the Sunday shows. Yes. Ultimately, if journalists are using lazy language defined by pundits, they are engaging in lazy journalism. It's that simple. 100%. 100% agree. This wasn't the only time that that happened. There was another quote that made the rounds on all the Sunday shows in every possible permutation. And Dana Bash, she threw that at Warner as well, because why not? I just want to take it up to sort of 10,000 feet and, and ask you about something that your fellow Virginia Democrat, Abigail Spanberger, had to say. She said that President Biden and his agenda about this, she said nobody elected him to be FDR. They elected him to be normal and stop the chaos. So are you misreading what Americans wanted out of this president, out of the Democratic caucus, that um, Democratic Congress that is now in control? <clears throat> I think what the, what the American people wanted was to do rational, pragmatic things. That's what I tried to do when I got elected governor 20 years ago when Virginia was a very red state. I think the initial plan against COVID in March was what the, the economy needed and Americans wanted. I think the 
infrastructure investments were long overdue. But I do think coming out of COVID, when virtually everybody's life has been dramatically changed, thinking about and putting forward proposals about childcare, about preschool to get folks back into the workplace, mm -hmm. to recognize that we've been talking about bringing down the cost of prescription drugs for 30 years, and we're finally gonna do it, and recognizing we've gotta grapple with climate change, I actually think that is what the American public hired Joe Biden to do. And I think once we do it, I think you'll see the president's numbers dramatically improve. So this statement by Spanburner, nobody elected him to be FDR. <laughs> it's, it's one of the most bizarre, like, put downs ever. It's like, FDR, what is he known for? He's known for being the president that won World War II. And he's known for being a president who got the country out of the Great Depression. And this is somehow a bad thing. <laughs> How dare a president, a Democratic president, try to be like another hugely successful, if not the most successful ever Democratic president? What? That's so bizarre. What a bizarre put down. And I think Warner, again, being someone who's not like the most progressive ever, does a pretty good job of pushing back and saying, this is just pragmatic stuff. It's just hard to fight for it when you have such a narrow margin. But again, it's a Democrat criticizing other Democrats in a creative way or a way that isn't usually done. And so it gets picked up. And look, it fits perfectly into the narrative of people are being too progressive. Carvel's saying there's too much wokeness, too much progressivism. Now Spanberger's saying it, but it's just, again, it's not, it's not very interesting. Well, it's interesting you mention this point of inquiry around kind of stability and kind of what, and what the Biden administration is actually accomplishing. I think there's like a challenge or journalists aren't necessarily exploring or, con or, or truly connecting frustrated Americans and where their frustration lies, right? So if they want stability, who is like stopping that stability, right? If they if want, Americans want, right, if Americans want to see progress, like who is hampering that progress or whatever that vision of what the progress should be? And, you know, Biden is president, so he's going to get the, the bulk of it. I get that. But I feel like sometimes the frustration of the American people is just like a very blanket frustration right. and so then there's like a very blanket you're the problem because you're a president right, right. and on on face the nation i thought cedric richmond actually had a really like smart response to these inquiries from margaret benning kind of trying to tackle that angle in this clip you'll hear them talking specifically around the lack of enthusiasm among black voters when you look at polling right now multiple polls have shown that support from key constituent groups for Democrats has receded a bit, particularly black voters. The administration walked away from police reform. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, as you know, uh, was failed this week. How long do black voters have to wait for the president to deliver for them? Because this seems to be a problem in some of these races we saw this past week, particularly in a state like Virginia. Margaret, and with all due respect, you're just wrong. I mean, uh, let's let's start here. Congress was unable to come to an agreement on police reform. So you know who acted? The president of the United States and the Department of Justice. The Democrats walked no away from those negotiations. Well, 
now are you talking Democrats or are you talking about the president? So you ask about the president, let me finish. The president and DOJ banned chokeholds. The president and DOJ limited the restrictions of no-knock warrant. The president made sure that he is acting when Congress cannot. So if you look at voting rights, we doubled the size of the Voting Rights Division in the Department of Justice so that we could challenge these unconstitutional laws in court. Just really, really smart responses here by Cedric Richmond, because he's saying like, again, I wish they would leave, like do more finger wagging to Congress saying like Congress isn't doing anything. So we're doing the best we can. But I get it. They're trying not to piss off. Maybe they're, you know, the Democrats in Congress. But <laughs> it's it's really well done here. It's saying, listen, like as the executive <laughs> branch, we're moving forward on these issues in all the ways that we can. Margaret Brennan, if she was smart, would say, but voters don't see that. Or, you know, voters are still disappointed by blank percent about the John Lewis voting rights bill. Like, is that worth something to explore again? Like, I think there's a way for Margaret Brennan to counter like the lack of action, legislative action on some of these key issues for black voters. But when you make a generalization and someone like, eviscerates it it's really hard to have like that strong follow-up yeah and she really walked into it with what her question was because you look back at the statement here i'm looking at the transcript that you pulled and her question was how long do black voters have to wait for the president to deliver for them exactly it wasn't how long do voters have to wait for congress or for democrat or Or whatever washington or whatever Right, right it was the president and he's saying look here's all the stuff the president did now her another great defense is like nobody knows about exactly. this right For where are you sure. talking about this you know voters hear about the failure of one or two and, big signature pieces of legislation they don't hear about and where's oh, the you pressure doubled, yeah. on congress to then actually do these things that you're saying yes. they're not willing to do then yeah you know, Biden had the reputation for being great, in, you know, a master of the Senate. Why can't he get the Senate to do this, right? Those are other questions you could have asked. These are some of the best uh, responses I've heard from Cedric Richmond, whose performance up to this point I felt has been subpar. I would say it's Sunday sometimes shows. rocky, but I hear you. Rocky's not good enough. <laughs> it's better than subpar. Rocky's inconsistent. Right. But he's been consistently rocky. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so, in conclusion, the shows are not doing a great job of covering a topic that we don't think they need to spend a lot of time covering. But even if they are covering, they should probably do better. That is a great summary, Brendan. Yes. We don't want to hear it. But if you're going to do it, do better. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And they should know better, right? Like, they should know better than just, like glomming on to anything some random pundit says about why something happened. Like, come on, you should know better, people. So, Naomi, speaking of that, do we have a dialogue challenge this week? So I have something, maybe it's like the dialogue not worth having. I would encourage people to think about what is the thing everyone is talking about that you're like, nope, not for me. This is not worth my time. Or the way this dialogue is happening, like, is not a dialogue I want to participate in. Yeah, and and that's a good point. And I would say to that effect, technology can help you on that. Muting is beautiful. You can mute, 
like so many people not just people topics yeah you can meet you whole topics like on twitter we're talking like twitter for example and other places but sometimes you can you can just like say i don't want to see anything about i don't know for example sports and you could just enter a bunch of sports terms and then they don't show up yeah i mean it could be about politics but like you mentioned it could be sports it could be other things like i stand by my decision to not care about game of thrones and like it's several years past the fact and still people sometimes want to talk about game of thrones and i still do not care and i'm perfectly fine with not participating in that talk in that talk in that conversation and that debrief no thank you well you say that but you also saw some of game of thrones it's not like you didn't like give in to the conversation one i did not give in (laughs) i thought i'd give it a chance i got up to the red wedding and i was like i am one million percent done with this show and i think it was like in the middle of its run or so i don't know but like it feels so good not to care about something that everyone expects you to care about like it's just quite free yeah that's a good point right there's a difference between having a strong opinion on it and just saying my strong opinion is i don't think it's worth having a strong opinion on this yeah i got plenty of those (laughs) all right well if you have a strong opinion that you shouldn't have a strong opinion on no hold on it's hard to say if you have a strong opinion about not having a strong opinion ah let us know about it yes there you go or if you want to say anything else you can email us at podcast you can follow us at polylogcast on twitter you can follow me at bstitle on and twitter and you can follow me on twitter at soda naomi underscore but if you don't want to do any of those things you can just rate the show it's just one thing you can do That's and true. that would be much appreciated yeah that'd be great too be a lot easier than trying to track to us down at all these places <laughs> that's true <laughs> Well, that's it for Polygon. We will talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.